We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis, joined, as always, by president of eRenewable, Mr. Mike Niemer. Mike, how are you today? Good, Fred. How are you? Fantastic. And uh, listen, we're excited about uh, episode number three, featuring EDP Renewable North America's head of origination, Mr. Thomas Greer. And, of course, uh, Mr. Greer, uh, based on everything that we've seen and talked to, uh, I guess you're more, you're more of a Tommy guy than, than a, than a I'm Thomas. I'm more of a Tommy. Tom, Tom and Thomas is my dad, so uh, Fair I'm, enough. I'm a Tommy. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, so let's get this thing started. Um, and, and we were just talking a little bit pr- uh, before the show started. You know, you're born and raised here in Houston, and as we all know, I mean, let's call it what it is. Houston is is you know the the center of, of the oil and gas world, especially here in North America. And you know, you're born and raised in that. Uh, you know, you got an extensive uh, academic career. You come back home and you start a career in the renewable space. How does a kid from Houston make his way after, again, a very prolific academic career? You pretty much could have done anything you wanted to do. You had the world that you're at, you know, the world was your oyster. How do you end up in Houston, back home, working for one of the largest renewable companies in the world? Yeah, well, first off, I wish all that was true. (laughs) Um, But I. Looking at grad school, my, my undergrad performance was nothing to uh, write home about. So, um, but no, I, I really did. I went back, you know, I was a major, I'd majored in journalism in undergrad. God bless you. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, didn't, didn't really find a, didn't really find a place there. Wasn't sure what I wanted. I, I wasn't even sure if that's what I wanted to do. But once you get halfway through college, you don't want to start things over again. Right. Um, so I came out of school and, and bounced around a little bit. Um, but I really just kind of felt like everybody that had gone and gotten, you know, a business degree of some sort was speaking this language that I didn't really speak. Um, there was a complete, you know, was an entirely different vernacular that I didn't understand. So decided to go back to, to, to grad school for that reason. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, it, it was interesting. I, once I was getting to the end of grad school, um, just like a lot of people, I had gone to grad school just because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and, and, and I, and I still wasn't sure, you know, going halfway through, but I was really, you know, if I was going to go back and take the time off from work and take on student loans and everything else, I wanted to do something. I wanted to find something that I was really, really passionate about. Um, I don't know. I've just seen too many people, uh, you know, just, just sticking with a job that, you know, pays them okay, but they, they don't have really any in passion for what they're doing. Um, and I didn't really want to end up, end up like that. Cause I feel like it was kind of a run happiness over the long term. Um, so, you know, environmental issues were something I, I had always had an interest in. Um, not sure if that uh, came a little bit for me, might've come from my parents too. I remember when my, my emergency card that I shared with my parents when I was in, you know, high school and college was a Greenpeace card. Hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even though, you know, growing up in Houston, I, I, I definitely had some of that influence. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was really kind of thinking about it. And I wasn't necessarily completely focused on renewable energy, but I knew that I'd always had it in, in kind of the environmental and green business space. Um, wasn't really sure how to leverage um, what I did in grad school in, in, into doing that. 
Um, so I, I really started, you know, I, I got out of grad school and was really, man, I don't, you know, my resume was kind of a mess at that point. I had done a couple different things and there wasn't any real clear path. So I, I, I n- n- nothing jumped out necessarily, but I thought that I, I'd spent a little bit of time in commercial real estate right after I got out of school, um, out of undergrad. So I did think I'd read a lot about renewable energy. Um, it seemed like there was, a, I believed in it. There was a lot of growth in the industry. Um, and I thought it was maybe somewhere where I could leverage the fact that I at least had some experience with land and things like that. Um, so yeah, so really just started doing informational interviews and trying to get my resume in front of anybody I could. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily, you know, Houston guy, but wasn't necessarily committed to coming back to Houston. Um, as, as it turned out, the, I'd love to say it was just the first, but it was really the only I had at the time okay. was with uh, Horizon Wind Energy, who happened to be a, you know, a Houston-based company. Okay. Um, so uh, that, that was really kind of the first, the, the, the first resume that got past the, uh, the, uh, the, the screener. Yeah, the screeners, exactly. So um, yeah, so ca- came back and, uh, and, and interviewed with Horizon. Um, as they were known, as we were known at the time, um, I was actually interviewing for a development role just because, again, I thought that I'd at least be able to tie something from my resume to, to, to renewable energy. Um, but really, I was just trying to sell the fact that I'd done a lot of research. I've read a lot about it. It was something I was personally interested in. So I had followed, but didn't have any work experience. So it was really um, try, trying to sell that interest in it more than anything. Yeah. Um, I, I ended up on the, on the interview, you know, we had like a six person you know, interview carousel. And uh, there were two guys who were actually hiring um, somebody for the commercial side of things. And long story short, I ended up getting hired on to kind of join the, what was really only two, three people, maybe two people at that time, the commercial team at Horizon Wind Energy. So it was really born from, you know, just trying to think about what interested me. Yeah. And then how is there a way that I can do something through a career that's going to continue to interest me and also allow me to, you know, pay back student loans and, and have at least some, <laughs> some level of, uh, you know, quality of living. Absolutely. And, and, and renewable energy. So it, it, like I said, it was, um, it, it could have been another, another spot in, in kind of the environmental green business space, mm-hmm. but, but renewable energy really was a good fit. And I, and I think it's, um, I'm really excited. It turned out that way. Oh, absolutely. And so you, so you, like I said, so you knew you were going to do something in the green space. It just so happened EDP was the one, or at the time Horizon Wind uh, was the one that came through. So, you know, like many other college, you know, like, you know, you're starting your professional career. What was kind of, you know, how did they, what was the role that it was billed to you and, and kind of, you know, just explain the process and just kind of your maturation uh, uh, when you got there and, and took things on kind of, you know, head first. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the, the company was going through a bit of a transition. Um, so Horizon Wind at the time, as it was known from 2005 to 2007, was owned by, was owned by Goldman Sachs at the time. And it was going through some pretty rapid growth. Um, and then EDP bought the, bought the company, um, which we'll talk about here in a second, in 2007, um, or bought the platform. But, you know, the, 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 really the DNA of, of the company was a pure play developer. Um, so just developing projects, um, you know, developing the relationships in the communities and getting projects to a level of commercial viability where then we would go out and look for a partner, um, somebody else to build, own, and operate. Um, when, when Goldman bought, well, at the time, Zilka Renewable Energy and rebranded it Horizon Wind Energy in 2005, um, 
you know, the business model was starting to change. It was starting to become more of a, de- you know, full service developer owner operator model. Okay. Um, and so I was kind of coming in at the tail end of that 2007 is when I joined. Um, so there hadn't really been a dedicated commercial team. Um, it really had been a lot of developers and some of the developers had been serving as the, um, the, the kind of the commercial team as well. So when I came on, they were just starting to build out the commercial team. And, and really what that means for, you know, all intents and purposes was that we were, we were the people tasked for finding homes for the electrons and the renewable energy credits from our renewable energy facilities. Um, we, 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 at the time, and we still don't have a lot of interesting, you know, projects on spec or on a merchant basis and being completely exposed to fuel price volatility. So normally we're looking for a long-term contract, a power purchase agreement um, to, to allow the uh, building and financing of our, of our projects. So, at the beginning, I was just brought on, really it was two of us, um, my boss at the time and, and me, um, and we were kind of responsible for developing um, the relationships with customers across the country um, and then kind of really, you know, sourcing and then analyzing and then closing the, the renewable energy transactions or the power purchase agreements. Um, so so at, at the beginning, I was really just kind of sitting second chair okay. uh, to my boss and was kind of learning everything I could. And there were only two of us. Um, and then over, over, you know, after a year or two, um, you know, got a little bit more experience under my belt and got to, got to be able to kind of branch out and do some of my, my own transactions. And the team started growing, um, not only in the origination kind of energy sales function that I work in, but, um, you know, we also have a market operations desk, which does, which does scheduling. We have a, you know, a risk and markets group, which is more of a, um, well, as the, as the name would imply, like intelligence and, and risk analysis. Um, so the, the commercial team in general was growing in a lot of different ways, but I, I was lucky that I kind of got in on the, the ground floor of the commercial team and specifically um, kind of the business development slash origination team starting to grow. Hey, Tommy, in uh, 2008, when the market crashed and everything, and we went through the transition we did with oil going from 130 or 40 down to $32 at did that slow your renewable market down a little bit? Or you as the novice coming out of college gave you more time to learn and develop your skills in the renewable space to help you grow commercially? You know, you, you'd, the, the market crash in 2008 certainly didn't help things just in, in general, right? Energy prices crashed. Right. You know, and, and we did have some projects that had some level of merchant exposure. So from that standpoint, it wasn't good. But, you know, back in 2007, um, 2008, I'd still say that a lot of the renewable energy industry was driven by um, incentives and mandates, right? So gotcha. a lot of states had renewable portfolio standards um, that they had to abide by. And, you know, just because the economy was on a downturn didn't mean that they were going to get a free pass on the renewables obligation. So I would say that at that time, the business was still fairly resilient and we still had quite a bit of things going on given the fact that there were some, you know, government mandates, government incentives in there. Now, we can talk about this a little bit later. That has obviously changed over time. But back in 2008, um, you know, th- that, was, that was one of the big, one of the drivers of the industry. I, I would say, though, it did, you know, th- there were, I mean, just, just as, as context, I mean, there, you know, power prices were, were really, really high at the time. Um, and when they crashed like that, it di- yeah, it definitely eroded some demand. Load went down. Um, so to say it had no effect w- would not be the case, but I still felt like we were still pretty busy and we had some legacy deals that we were working on. Um, California was still 
blowing and going and trying to get, you know, as many renewable right. power as they could from outside of the state since it was difficult to, to build in California at the time, or at least it was a, it was a time consuming process. So, um, yeah, it was kind of a hiccup, but it, it really didn't, it didn't throw, throw too much of a wrench in, you know, what, what we as a company were doing or what I was getting to do as kind of a relatively new employee. Tommy Greer, head of origination for EDP Renewables North America. What similarities do you see between what's going on right now with the COVID pandemic and what went down in 2008 when the market crashed? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, it, it's, it, it's definitely different. Um, you know, for, for one thing, again, the drivers, the reason people are, are, are buying renewable energy now is I, I feel like it's a completely different value proposition. Now, people are buying because it's because it makes financial sense. Right, it is a cost competitive option. Um, obviously, there are a lot of people that want to be sustainable, especially when you start getting away from the utilities and you start talking about end use customers, some of the big tech companies, et cetera. Um, you know, the C and I market, if you will. Um, a lot of them are obviously doing it for you know their stakeholders are demanding that they be sustainable. They want um, they want their energy usage to be offset with renewables. So the drivers are definitely different. It's much more of an economics play. Um, and even, you know, obviously pre COVID, you know, a lot of utilities are shutting down coal because it's not economic at the same time. And that, that, that stuff's still happening. And even though load definitely come down a little bit, um, we haven't really seen a real decrease in demand thus far. Most people are still looking at the renewable targets. They might see carbon pricing on the horizon. Um, they might still have a, a, a 100% renewable mandate that they shared with their stakeholders. But we've demand has been pretty resilient um, in COVID. I would say what COVID has affected us the most on, um, or the industry the most on, is what we're building right now, kind of the supply chain and the construction of projects right now. That's definitely been a little bit slowed up. But in, but in 2000, this, you know, from an economic standpoint, this seems less drastic, at least from a demand standpoint, than 2008 did. Now, from a personal standpoint, from how we all interact and travel and do business, obviously, this is having a much, a much larger effect and a much more severe effect. But um, it, it, the industry so far has seemed pretty resilient to what, what, what's been happening under COVID. One of the things, we, we talked to uh, Ben Parvey, Blue Sky Power CEO, last week, and one of the things he mentioned about COVID that's helped them is that it made them kind of change, not necessarily change on the fly, but it you know kind of made them do kind of a deep dive into just kind of their philosophical way of doing things uh, at Blue Sky, kind of changed the way they were doing some things as far as, you know, maybe different projects or, you know, maybe do we need to spend money on, on this and, and maybe be a little more um, efficient, if you will. Has EDP or, or is your group, because I mean, obviously EDP is a, a, a huge company, has it changed any of your business practices or any of the way you, not necessarily the way you guys do business, but maybe the way you guys attack a project or go about, you know, the efficiency of doing something? Hello. It has changed some things, but I'd say they're kind of a bit more difficult because our developers that I think our developers do best is developing those relationships in the community. And it's really difficult to do that. Um, hey, when, Tommy, can you answer that? Yeah, you're, you're, the, the Internet froze real quick. Can you can you start that answer over again? Yeah, absolutely. Sorry about that. No, you're fine. Having, no, sorry. It's the Internet. Been having interwebs, interwebs it's trouble. It's okay. It's okay. Um, no, I was going to say. Everybody does. Yeah. So, no, I was going to say COVID, you know, it. It has had some. It has had some effects, but they're but they're smaller scale effects. Okay. Um, you know, from a development standpoint, 
you know, it's just more difficult. You're out there normally talking to landowners, talking to the community, talking to local governments, et cetera. And, and all of a sudden that becomes a remote type situation or somebody needs to travel, which, you know, isn't necessarily something that people feel comfortable with right now. So it's definitely changed up a lot of the mechanics of how we do something. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's actually changed the overall process okay. um, that much. From a commercial side, it's definitely different. Just, I mean, we're, and, you know, Mike, Mike can attest to this too, you know, used to being out at conference, going out and visiting with customers, doing that sort of thing. That's obviously been completely eclipsed by, uh, you know, the kind of discussion we're having now exactly. <laughs> over, over the internet. But it hasn't, you know, really it's, like I said, it's had more of an effect on construction. Um, the people that really have to be out on site um, we're, we're, we're relying on components being sent from elsewhere in the country or potentially from another country. Um, and that's really where we've seen a bit of a change and a slowdown. And so I, I, I will say, and, and it sounds like this is kind of a common refrain amongst a lot of companies in different sectors, but I, I think it has, it's forced us to become a little bit more efficient in certain ways. Okay. Um, you know, to be able to develop remotely, to, to be able to market projects and negotiate PPAs remotely, it, it, it takes, you know, it's, it's a slightly different process than what we're used to. So, um, you know, it was kind of born by necessity, but I think it's probably... I think we've learned some lessons that we'll take to the, the post-COVID times. Um, mm -hmm. But luckily, from our standpoint, aside from the travel, um, it, 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 it's largely kind of remained the same. Um, like it, I said, demand hasn't died down. This is more of a and this is more of a kind of a business or just kind of a, a human question. But are getting those deals done over the Internet or like we're doing on a Zoom, does it take on a different kind of uh, – um, I don't know. Does it take on a different feel or maybe a different approach as opposed to somebody that like you, that, you know, you're a relationship guy, you deal deals with the, uh, people in person. How does your approach change when it's one thing when you, me and you know, me, Tommy and, and, and Mike are doing a deal or we're all doing this in person versus now all of a sudden there's this electronic barrier. Maybe we don't have the body language is different. The vibes are different. How has that changed? Yeah, no, it, it definitely changes, but it, it's been interesting. I would say over the last several years, or at least the last two, there has been a lot less in-person negotiation okay. than there was in my previous 10 years. Uh, like every negotiation session we were doing, or a lot of them was in person. We try to do in person as much as we can. I feel like that was starting to re to move to something more remote. Okay. Um, just given the speed of deals, given the, the, you know, the ability to get, if your council's located somewhere different and we're somewhere different, we're negotiating with somebody in a different state. I feel like we'd started to move to phone calls quite a bit. So um, what I would say is interesting is that normally I'd say over the last, like I said, the last two years, it's been much more phone call based. Um, now there's almost more of a personal because everybody's doing on video. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of actually, I would say it's almost enabling a little bit more of sort of the, the body language and personal connection that you don't necessarily get when you're in person because it had been eclipsed by the phone. And now the phone's kind of being eclipsed by, uh, you know, Zoom and uh, Microsoft Teams and the like. So it's, it's actually been interesting. It hasn't, it hasn't changed things too much. And it's almost kind of added like an additional layer of like making it feel personal. You're seeing these people where they live. You're seeing them with their kids running around. around. You're seeing, you know, it's kind of a humanizing yeah. effect. So, you know, it, it just further kind of, I guess, enforces the idea that, you know, we, we tend to look at these negotiations as like, these are people that we're going to be long-term partners with. You know, we're trying to get PPAs for 15, 20 years. So we are entering into a long-term relationship. We want this to be good. We don't want to come out of a relationship scorched earth. Um, 
So, you know, I, I think being able to kind of have that additional connection has actually been kind of helpful, you know, strangely enough. Thomas. That's good to pull something positive out of this. Absolutely. Got to try to find something positive in this. Well, amen. <laughs> Tommy Greer, head of origination for EDP Renewables North America. Um, obviously, the renewable market is a much different beast over in Europe than it is here uh, in North America, here in the United States. Um, how... I'm, I'm guessing it's been a huge benefit to be able to lean on, you know, your sister companies over, you know, sister EDP over in Portugal, over in Spain. How has being able to leverage that information, leverage that knowledge and leverage that experience helped you guys to become the power player and, and, and you know, grow that the wind market that you have and, and solar and the renewable market as a whole here in the United States and in North America? Yeah, it, it's, it's been really helpful. Although, you know, I, 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 you know, most of our competitors or a lot of our competitors here in the States also have foreign parents. Okay. So it's not necessarily uh, it's not necessarily a competitive advantage that only we have, but no, I'd say it's been great. So, um, you know, again, you know, Goldman was pumping us full of pumping horizon wind full of capital. Um, but they didn't necessarily have a lot of operational experience in, in, in wind farms either at the time. So when EDP bought horizon wind energy in 2007, you know, the, the European market was ahead of the U S market from a renewable standpoint at that point in time. Um, just from an operational standpoint, everything else, the markets certainly operate differently. And there's a whole host of different challenges, you know, in the U.S. versus some of the countries over there. But it was definitely good to lean on them for some of their operational expertise, just because they had been in these projects longer than we had. Um, and, and then it's been and, you know, as time has gone on, I, I feel like it's become a little bit more of a symbiotic relationship. I mean, obviously, look, it's great to have a utility who finances construction off their balance sheet, right? We don't have to go out and raise debt. Um, so it's great to have a, you know, an ultimate parent company in, in EDP that is, you know, has, uh, you know, sees renewables as a very important part of its overall strategy. Um, but no, it, it's been helpful. But then there have been some things now that have ramped up maybe a little bit more quickly in the States, mm -hmm. um, the CNI market, energy storage. Um, so now it's kind of reversed where we're, we're talking to our European counterparts sometimes and they're, they're able to leverage some of the experience that we've had here. So it, it was definitely helpful, definitely, definitely helpful. But there are also from a commercial standpoint and also I'd say from a financing standpoint, some pretty large differences between the U.S. and Europe. Um, and, and those weren't necessarily ever going to be completely bridged by our relationship. But it's always good to have, um, you know, a sister company, a parent company who, who you can throw some things off of. And obviously we can um, collaborate a lot on, on operational efficiency and the like. What are those you large know, differences? Oh, so, you know, I mean, just, you know, when we, when, when I started, most of Europe was, was more of a feed-in tariff type world. So, you know, you built a project and you plugged it into the grid and the government guaranteed you a price. Oh, wow. Um, you know, we, we were out there sort of, you know, in the U.S. kind of bilaterally negotiating contracts. Um, you know, you're trying to bid into things. You're trying to be the low-cost provider. Um, so, you know, it was a little bit more competitive from that standpoint. Um, and, and, you know, the, the electricity market has started, um, I guess, becoming fully integrated markets uh, on a faster time frame than some European markets have. So just the way in which you settle contracts, um, the, the contractual specifics, the flexibility you have with taking on certain risks in a contract, it was just really different between the U.S. and Europe for a while. I'd say it's starting to converge a little bit as the European markets start to change, but it was definitely several years ago when, especially when we first started working with, um, 
you know, when the two, the two platforms started working together, it was a, it was definitely a different animal on, on the financing side. Um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we, we have tax incentives, um, just like, you know, oil and gas has tax incentives, renewables has tax incentives as well, but those tax incentives, you know, often need to be monetized and we sometimes bring on partners. Um, Europe doesn't have that. Um, so there were definitely some differences there. So, um, and, and it's interesting. I mean, you can look at the U S as kind of a microcosm of it. I mean, the, the, the some of the, the energy markets differ across the U S too, how you might do something in California is going to be wildly different than you do something if you step over to Arizona. Um, so it was just kind of that, but on a larger scale. Hey, Tommy, uh, yeah. when you talk about your counterparts and colleagues in, in Europe, do you guys have positions within your U.S. office or P.N. office where you, you got, where those positions liaison with each other so you can always be tracking the changes each are having so you might be the first to market because you learned something in Europe before your other competitors and might also have a European market uh, counterpart. Do you have people that work that in that are they that integrated between Europe and US or is it just one originator to another and no set person? If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it depends on the department. So, I mean, we definitely have some, some, you know, sectors of the company where, where, where frankly, I mean, they're like uh, procurement, for both North America and Europe is run out of North America. Um, M&A for both Europe and uh, even though there are personnel in Europe for that, the, the person who heads it up is in the US. So we have some actual integration where the teams themselves are a combination of folks from the EU platform and the North American platform. Commercially, um, it's, a, it's a little bit different. We, I have a counterpart over there and the folks on my team kind of have counterparts themselves. They'll have regular check-ins just to make sure we're, we're, we're sharing information. Um, if, if they've learned something new or if we've learned something new that we're sharing that, especially given the rise of CNI customers, you know, if we're, if we're talking to Pacific gas and electric, just to name a utility, um, you know, our, our European counterparts obviously aren't going to be talking to PG&E. Right. Whereas if we're talking to, again, making it up Google, well, there's a good chance our European counterparts are going to be talking to Google too. So it, you know, as, as those kind of customers, become a bigger part of the market, it, it necessitates additional collaboration with them. So we don't have day-to-day interaction on the commercial team. Um, it's more just regular check-ins to make sure we're kind of sharing best practices. But other teams um, are, are fully integrated, um, if not, you know, combined teams with personnel from, from both platforms. Gotcha. Do you now, do you typically just originate, are you, are you, originating just solar, excuse me, wind deals, or you, you got your hand in a little bit of everything. So, so we do, we do a little bit of everything. So we were tradition, we were traditionally a wind player. We were a wind player for a long time. Um, and, and that was largely driven by economics, right? Um, solar wind, wind costs, CapEx costs started coming down before solars did. Okay. Um, so there was a time when wind was, you know, a pretty cost competitive option and, and solar wasn't obviously over the last several years, that's changed. Solar's solar has come down precipitously. In, in its costs. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I would say that even, you know, as an operating company, the, the majority of the plants that we're operating are, are wind um, on our pipeline, our development pipeline going forward is at least 50, 50, if not a little bit more on the solar side now. So, so we do all of it and we're building solar right now and we're building some other solar in 2022 um, with some of that solar, we'll be adding uh, batteries. Um, so, you know, we've started to see a lot more interest in energy storage and battery storage um, and, and so that's something that we're, uh, you know, 
some expertise on, and we'll be building some of that in uh, the year 2022 as well. Um, so yeah, so it, it, it's all of the above. Um, and then also um, my team also handles the sort of the renewable energy credit book. So if there are, um, you know, normally in these PPAs, we're selling the renewable energy credits and we're selling the power, but for our merchant facilities, we're selling power into the market, mm-hmm. which, you know, another team is responsible for, but then we do have all these renewable energy credits that we need to sort of optimize the value of. And that's something that, that the team works on too. But from a technological standpoint, it's, it, it really is all three. It's wind, solar storage, just, um, you know, getting ramped up on the solar side, which we've been doing over the last couple of years. Um, you know, it's easier to make a transition from wind to solar than it is from solar to wind because there's just so many pieces to the turbine and operating wind is actually a pretty difficult thing to do. Not that solar's not, but it, it definitely has less complexity. So we've, we felt comfortable making, making that transition, but I'd say a lot of what, a lot of our focus now is solar and, and, you know, where, where, where it makes sense adding storage. Uh, Tommy, your uh, your teammates are selling the uh, unbundled wrecks when you've separated it from the power, yeah. like you described. I know a couple of years ago, they used to say the unbundled wreck made up 60% of the wreck market. Do you think that number is still that high? Does it still trade that much without the energy directly tied to it? It's, it's tough to say. Um, I, 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 would, I don't have that data in front of me, obviously. Um, you know, there, there's still, amount, I mean, there are a lot of entities and it really depends on the market. Um, you know, some utilities are really using unbundled recs to satisfy their RPS obligations. Take the, you know, some of the utilities in PJM. That's really what they're doing. Right. Um, others are taking a fully bundled product. Um, I, I really don't think if you look at how many renewables PPAs are being signed across the country, and then you look at sort of the supply and demand fundamentals um, on, on specific state RPSs where the, where the wrecks are a little bit more valuable, I have a hard time believing it would still be 60%. I mean, there's still a pretty robust market for unbundled wrecks, um, but I, 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 gotta, I have to assume that the, the bundled transactions are taking a majority of that these days. Yeah, that makes sense. Tommy Greer, head of origination for EDP Renewables North America, joins us here, episode three of the Green Insider Podcast. I'm Fred Davis, along with uh, e-renewable president Mike Niemer. As we, as the renewable market continues to grow, you talk about you know solar costs are coming down. You guys are, you like I said, you guys have been making that transition for the last couple of years. Obviously, wind continues to grow. How's the race for real estate to make these projects happen? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, it's fairly competitive, right? I mean, we, we know where good wind is and we know where good solar is and so do all of our competitors. Um, and there, there are a lot of, a lot of developers out there trying to build projects. So um, re- real estate can be, I mean, we, there, there are definitely some, some battles out there and trying to get good real estate. The, one of the interesting things though that's happened in the, in the market over the, over the years is that, you know, before it was like, okay, we know where the good wind pockets are. And now we have to find, and then we have to find a good interconnection location. That's still true. I mean, interconnection is a huge part of it because transmission tends to lag generation, right? Um, so, you know, finding the right spot to interconnect to on the grid is still kind of, of, of paramount importance. But that being said, given the technological advances we've seen, not only over time, but even year to year on the wind turbine side, on the solar panel side, um, it's pretty remarkable that there are places that wouldn't have really economically supported a project several years ago that do now because the tech, the technology, 
technology makes for a much more efficient capture of whatever the resource is, be it wind or solar. So while real estate can, especially in certain markets, it can be, there are a lot of us looking in the same places. I feel like the fact that there have been technological advances have broadened the amount of you know, real estate or the amount of areas where renewable projects can reasonably be built at, at a cost that makes sense. Um, so it's always going to be a competitive marketplace, but I, but I feel like you know, we, we continue to look at new states and uh, building places that we hadn't built before. So um, you know, look forward to that continuing. So I would say less, real estate is less of a constraint these days, and I'd say that interconnection to the grid is, is really the larger constraint. Hey, Tommy, do you find uh, huge challenging differences between a, trying to build a project in a deregulated state versus building one in a regulated state? And what are some of those differences if there are any? No, uh, the, the, the electricity market itself really doesn't make much of a difference on how we're building the project. It really comes down to what, what, what are the state regulations? What are the county regulations? Um, you know, l- let's face it, in Texas, you know, there's not, a, there's not a permitting regime and there's less, you know, environmental things you have to go through. You can get it built fairly easily in Texas, which is why you see so much renewable growth here. Um, California, on the other hand, you know, um, it's a more difficult place we, between the permits that you have to get and the environmental studies you have to do. It just takes longer um, to get something done. So it, it really is more um, a function of how the state or the county, um, you know, looks at these and regulates them as opposed to what the energy market itself really does. Because all of this is happening pre us putting electrons on the grid. The, the derated or regulated market can make a huge difference in the PPA and how we can sell power and who we can sell power to. Um, that's where I'd say more of the difference is not so much on the development side. That makes sense. Where's uh, wind, solar? Where are you guys at on hydropower? Um, hydro is tricky. I mean, EDP owns some hydro assets in, in Portugal, some legacy hydro assets. Um, you know, it's cheap power, but you can't, you know, I mean, most of the time you're talking run of the river. So, you know, right. you're, you're sort of geographically constrained. It makes okay. sense that the Northwest um, is, is use, still using a lot of hydro. Uh, um, but to artificially, you know, I mean, I remember years ago, people were looking at, you know, all sorts of, of ways to sort of do a modified energy storage before batteries had really become, before battery cost had come down. And it was maybe taking a reservoir of water and pumping it up and then releasing it when you need to. So sort of creating almost like artificial solar. Um, we, it's just something just like, just like geothermal, something like that. I mean, it's, it's an important part of certain parts of the U S grid, but realistically deploying new assets, it, it really doesn't make economic sense. You've, you've got to, you've really got to have the resource nearby. Um, and that comes with it with its own challenges too. Right. You talk before the Northwest and there's been, you know, wind versus fish uh, arguments going on for, for quite some time. So hydro definitely has some other, you know, environmental and other considerations, but I mean, Hey, it's a, it's obviously a zero cost fuel, just like, just like solar and wind are. So in the, in the areas of the country where it makes sense, it's great, but not something that we would be looking at from a, you know, from a development standpoint. When you got into this industry back in uh, 2007 and here, here you are now 13 years, uh, you know, deep into this, 
where are we at as a society with our understanding of renewable energy and the fact that you know well you know it's 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 it, what do you do on cloudy days what do you do when it doesn't when when there's no wind outside i mean i think as a society we we've gotten you know we haven't gotten completely past that but we're we're starting to get through that what, what where are we at right now with just the overall understanding of you know we're gonna we, we at some point are gonna have to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. We're gonna have to start, you know, embracing renewable energy. We've got the twenty fifty deal where, you know, you've got plenty of companies that have, have committed to, okay, we are going to be green by then. Where are we at? What, what what kind of progress are we making? Where's the status quo at right now when it comes to renewable energy? Yeah, that's interesting. And so I'm gonna kinda put for for these purposes, I'm gonna put the politics of it aside. Okay. Um, or at least the partisan side. Throw, of it throw aside. in what you want. Throw in what you want. <laughs> But uh, no, so it, it's interesting. So, you know, the, the, the industry has, has made, you know, tremendous leaps and bounds um, over the last 12 years or, you know, over the last 20, but at least, you know, speaking from my personal experience over the last 12, 13 years, um, like that, I feel like a lot of utilities were only just learning about renewables. Um, some of them were buying renewables for the first time, um, you know, and it was really kind of more of a niche kind of a niche industry, something they were looking at because they felt they needed to, but it wasn't something that was really going to be a fundamental part of their system. I mean, that's not necessarily true for utilities across the country, but that's kind of how it felt. Um, and we felt that, you know, we were kind of serving almost as much of an education role as anything else. They were like, well, we need to learn about renewables. Come and tell us, come and tell us what you're doing. Um, I think that the way that renewables are integrated into the market um, the understanding that buyers in the market, utilities, and and now seeing and I have about renewables has grown exponentially. Um, what what effect renewables really has on the system? You brought up the sun doesn't shine, you know, um, you know the the wind doesn't blow. True, I mean these these are intermittent resources. But there are all sorts of ways we can we can get around that. There's portfolio effects of having. If you have enough of them, you know, you know, wind doesn't disappear at the same time everywhere. Um, now we've got batteries, which can definitely help. We've, um, you know, developers, we've just, you know, and other developers have too, but we've become more sophisticated in what we can do in the market. We can offer, we can offer a customer a fixed shape type transaction and kind of warehouse that intermittency risk ourselves, which is something that, you know, maybe we weren't able to do 12 years ago. So the, there are definitely ways to get around that. So it's been really exciting to see how much the industry has grown. And like I mentioned before, the fact that, we're really making an argument based on now. We are not having to point to mandates. We're really pointing to the fact that it makes economic sense has been kind of a big change in how we've dealt with utilities. Um, there's still some work to go with the public, but hopefully that'll continue to evolve. Um, the bigger step, this is one of the things that I think is most exciting about renewables right now is that, you know, obviously it's something that gets talked about a lot. It's becoming a much bigger um, portion of the electricity mix. But if you look at us as, you know, roughly the fourth biggest, well, wind owner, um, not renewables, but we're, we're up for all renewables in the world. And we have about 1,200 employees um, between our platform and the EU platform. Um, if you think about the fourth biggest oil and gas company in the world, um, I don't know who that is or how many employees they have, but I'm sure it's hundreds of thousands um, yeah. of employees. So there's still... Um, you know, there are still parts of the, the grid where solar is only making up two, three percent. There is a tremendous amount of growth that is still possible for us in, in the near term. And like I said, setting aside politics, the, the current administration has not been the fleeest to renewables. 
um, for, for, for a variety of different reasons. But renewables has still grown a lot. Um, and, and most of and, you know, our company and plus some of our competitors have even increased our build targets during these last four years. So it's really exciting to think about, like, we've come a long way, but there's a really, re- there's a ton of room for growth. And there's, there's, there's still a long way to go. But I, I mean that in, in the good sense. It's kind of exciting because if we're really, if renewables is going to become um, a significant part of the energy and the energy grid, there, there, there's, there's still a lot, there's still a lot of work to be done, which is great. When you talk about that room to grow, what are some, what are two, two top two or three things right now that's on EDP, uh, EDP's radar as far as, okay, in the next five to 10 years, we're looking to do this. And this is what the market's telling us. And this is what we're going after. You mentioned solar yeah. already, but what are those three things as far, or just like I said, just two or three, whatever you want to mention as far as the, 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 the where that growth is, is available at. Yeah, no, I mean, so, so, you know, yeah, we've talked, yeah, solar is going to continue to grow. I mean, continuing to see how, um, you know, the technology advances. I mean, that's still going to be huge, right? Because our whole energy industry, uh, we're, we're stepping, our, P, our production tax credits and our investment tax credits are stepping down over the next five to seven years to where renewables could be the only unsubsidized form of energy uh, on the grid, Um so, you know, there, as we lose those, those tax credits, um, you know, technological advances can make up for some of that. So it's definitely interesting to see, you know, how that, how the technology continues to advance. Um, I, I would say, I mean, go- government policy does make a difference. Again, yeah. it's not something that we're reliant on for our business model anymore, which but is it, great. But it doesn't hurt. But, but it doesn't hurt, right? It doesn't hurt. Um, so that's something, you know, I mean, I think the 2020 election is, is, an, is a very important one for renewable energy. Um, again, without talking candidates or anything, but it's, it is an important one for renewables and, and renewables potential growth. Um, I think that transmission expansion is another big thing that we're watching, you know, because this is something that's obviously not in our control. Um, you know, we're, we're just building projects and connecting them to the grid. We're not necessarily uh, responsible at all for the build out of that grid. We definitely have folks who are monitoring things on the regulatory and the government affairs standpoint. Um, but to continue to, de- for renewables to continue growing at the pace it has or to grow even more rapidly, yeah. um, you know, we're definitely in some parts of the country going to need more rapid transmission expansion. We are going to need faster interconnection studies, um, et cetera. So looking at the overall grid as a whole, um, and as I mentioned before, you know, we, we tend to generation gets generation gets built up and then everybody's like, Oh God, we got to Now we got to build some transmission. Um, it'd be great to have, you know, we're watching to make sure there's a little bit more proactivity there. Um, we'd love to see some of the transmission, uh, be in advance or in conjunction with, um, the, the, the generation. So I'd say those are the, the big three things off the top of my head that, that, that we're really watching. Okay. Um, okay. But none of those, again, those are, those have all been challenges. Like I said, for the last couple of years right. and renewable has, has grown, grown quite a bit over the last few years. So um, not insurmountable problems, but definitely things we're watching. And then I know just from talking to our guy, Ben Parvey, you know, they, their, their next deal is they want to get into the residential market, you know, make a bigger play in the residential side of things. Is that something where, you know, you guys see yourself expanding into or dabbling into that you guys are already doing some already? I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, it's certainly not, it's a completely different business model. Right. Um, So it really would be, you know, it wouldn't be something we would just start doing on our on our own. We'd have to we'd have to buy a platform. Yeah. Um, I, I do think there's some interest, not necessarily in in 
just the pure residential, but um, you know, we, we see more and more customers, especially on the CNI side, are interested in distributed solutions. Okay. So they might be interested in a big offsite solar facility, but they also might be interested in having solar panels on their distribution warehouse or their data center or, or whatever. So, um, you know, I, I do think there's some growth and some and some potential there on the distributed side. Again, completely different business model, um, but some of the customers are the same. So there could be some potential synergies there. Again, it's not something, you know, we're, we're pretty much completely focused on utility scale. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point in the future, that was something we we maybe looked into diversifying on. And, and, and we know that some of our competitors are, are trying to do the same thing too. Um, because I think there, there will increasingly be, um, you know, I think a need for you to be able to serve all needs of a customer, be it utility scale or distributed, as opposed to just one or the other. Um, so further integration between those two, I think, probably only helps the market. All right, we'll get you out of here with this, and we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you this, considering this is the e-renewable podcast. Uh, you've had a chance to uh, use the e-renewable auction uh, platform and website, and uh, we've had a chance to you know uh, try to facilitate some deals for you. Your your uh, experience with using e-renewable and, and using the auction platform uh, to try to get some deals done uh, the last few times that you guys have tried to transact. Yeah, no, it, it's been great. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's definitely somewhere that the market's going to continue to go. I mean, we, I think the biggest thing for us is that we have seen, you know, overall demand on the CNI side of things is, is, is increasing, mm-hmm. but the demand per customer is probably going down. There are only so many big companies, your Googles and your Amazons and your Microsofts who can take thousands of megawatts of power. There are a lot of companies in the fortune 500 fortune 1000 that only need a fraction of that to offset their entire energy usage. Um, so, you know, you've, we've got to find the industry needs to find creative ways to serve customers um, that only need to take a smaller piece. Right. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, the e-renewable platform was a way to do that. It was a way to say, Hey, we're, we have a large amount of power here, but we can sell it off in blocks to you um, in kind of a streamlined fashion. Um, and, and hopefully it was a way to bring in some of the, some of the CNI customers that are coming into the space. So, yeah, I mean, we, you know, they've been very successful on the electricity side of things, um, traditional electricity and kind of retail supply. So we, we, we thought it could be a, a good opportunity to, to bring some new customers in the fold. And we're, we're excited to see uh, how that evolves. Absolutely. Well, Tommy, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much uh, for making this possible for us. Like I said, we, I, we've certainly learned a lot, and uh, we hope our listeners do too. Uh, where can we go to the EDP Renewable website? And I'm, I'm guessing you guys are on social and doing all the things that uh, the kids are doing on social these days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've got, you've, got ED, you've got an EDP website. You've got an EDPR website. You've got a specific EDPR North America website where you can see information on all our operating facilities and where we're in construction. So yeah, we're, we're wherever you're looking, you can probably find us. Do you guys have a TikTok yet? We don't have a TikTok. Don't have a TikTok. <laughs> Not don't. there. Yeah, no, I, I gotta I gotta talk to the communications mm, department mm, about that. Mm. See, my That's daughter, funny. my daughter just shook her head because she was hoping <laughs> she could get on that EDP renewable uh, uh, TikTok. Tommy, thank you so much again for your time. Please stay stay cool as you possibly can out there. Hydrate and thank you so much for your time today. 
Likewise, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks once again to Tommy Greer, head of origination for EDP Renewables. Mike, I got to say, it was nice to get a, you know, we, we got Ben, you know, again, on the smaller side of scale uh, as far as uh, from a you know, business standpoint. EDP Renewables, as you mentioned, one of the largest renewable companies in the world. But we learned a great deal about kind of what are some of the challenges facing them and just kind of where the market's at as a whole. Absolutely. I hope all the listeners enjoyed listening to Tommy. He gave a perspective that maybe not all of our listeners have access to. Mm-hmm. As you say, you know, one of the world's largest developers. So uh, the insight that he provided us, I think, is not only educational, but simply just enjoyable to listen to. Well, and, and, and extremely encouraging, too. Yeah, it's very encouraging. And so uh, I look forward to doing further business with EPR, and uh, hopefully our, our listeners out there, they need to reach out to Tommy. Just reach out to us off our eRenewable.net website. Just ping us, and we'll be able to put you in touch with it. Thank you so much. eRenewable, eRenew.net, eRenewable, where we make going green a lot easier. Thank you so much for tuning in. Good night. God bless. <laughs>